Welcome to the podcast of the preaching ministry of LifePoint Church, led by Pastor Lane Harrison. We pray this ministry is a blessing for your life. For more information about LifePoint, please visit lifepointozark.com. For more information and resources from Pastor Lane, please visit mlaneharrison.com. Well, good morning. It's a joy to be with you. For those of you who do not know me, my name is Ethan Lippert, and I'm the pastoral associate here at the church. I assist Pastor Lane with community groups, and I oversee our membership pathway, so helping people who are new uh, see the beauty in church membership and takes those next steps, as well as I um, oversee the facility. So if something's broken, it's my fault. I'll be honest. Um, Just kidding, but I'm trying to uh, fix it if it is. But it's such a joy to be with you this morning. Um, And for um, uh, a word of mission before we get into the text, our students are going to be going to camp next week. So 7th through 12th grade, um, we're praying for you. We're asking the Lord to do a mighty work in you. And so want to give that as a word of mission so we as a church can be praying for the safety of the leaders, of the students, and also for God to do a mighty work in their hearts as well. So we've been working through a series this summer entitled Stories for Real Christ Followers. Jesus is teaching on gospel Living And we've walked through chapters 15 through 17 already. We've seen the transfiguration. We've seen the confession of Peter. We've seen some wonderful things. And we're entering now into what is known as the fourth discourse in the Gospel of Matthew. Now, a discourse is just a fancy word for a prolonged section of teaching. So we're going to see as Jesus is teaching his disciples and teaching us what it looks like to live as kingdom people. So he's going to show us the distinctions about living as his people versus living in the world. So we're going to begin in Matthew 18, verses 1 through 6. So if you have your Bibles, open up with me there. Matthew 18, verses 1 through 6. At that time, the disciples came to Jesus, saying, Who is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? And calling to him a child, he put him in the midst of them and said, Truly I say to you, unless you turn and become like children, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Whoever humbles himself like this child is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. Whoever receives one such child in my name receives me. But whoever causes one of these little ones who believe in me to sin, it would be better for him to have a great millstone fastened around his neck and to be drowned in the depth of the sea. This is God's word and should be believed and received as such for us this morning. So what makes a person great? It's a big question. Many of you probably have heard of Michael Jackson, right? I mean, Thriller, Beat It, uh, Billie Jean. I mean, this guy was a talented singer and dancer. And if I tried any of those things, they're not gifts I have and you'd take me out on a stretcher. So we're not going to try that this morning. But Michael Jackson was on the top charts with his songs many times. He was very well known. Um, and He was very talented at what he did. And the sad thing about his life and many that aspire to greatness was with the more success that they found, the more and more spiraling out of control their life became. 
And so Michael Jackson had a, a bunch of mental issues and um, drug addictions and it ultimately ended his life. But his aspiration for greatness turned into a distortion and ultimately a destruction of his purpose that God created him for. And we see that so many times within so many people who are professional athletes or just great and, and, and it just, it stores up a pride within people. And so I have another question as we think about ourselves. When you think about yourself being great, what do you think about? If you're like me, it's easy to think, well, I'm not a CEO of a business. I'm not a famous TikTok influencer or YouTube influencer. Um, I, I'm not a politician. I'm not um, a major player in a company. But for some of you, you might think, well, I'm not, you know, maybe the top, but I, I'm pretty great at what I do. Uh, I own a business or I have influence in the community. And those are not bad things. Let me say that. But they do come with a great call to stewardship for the Lord. And for the person who is seemingly insignificant in the eyes of the world, let me offer an encouragement. Greatness in the eyes of the world does not necessarily equate with greatness in the eyes of the Lord. And if you are seemingly great, steward it for Jesus. Amen? Because that greatness won't mean anything if it's accumulated for yourself. Because finding your worth and your abilities, your wealth, your status... Um, will only lead to a boasting that will lead to disappointment and to destruction. Greatness that is rooted in self will only hinder you from being able to show yourself and others what the greatness of God really looks like. And so the main point I want us to walk away with this morning from this text is that greatness in the kingdom of heaven is given to whoever humbles himself to receive the king of heaven. And so to see that, I want us to look at Matthew 18, one through six, and see three distinctions about kingdom-minded people. Three distinctions about kingdom-minded people. So the first one in our text is kingdom-minded people strive to think like their king. Kingdom-minded people, they strive to think like their king. Look back with me at verse one. At that time, the disciples came to Jesus saying, who is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? So let's get some context. Like I said, Matthew 18 opens up what is known as the fourth discourse uh, in the gospel of Matthew. And where we are at at this point in Matthew is in Capernaum. And for those of you who don't know what Capernaum is, like I did in prior to this message, just Capernaum was known as kind of like the home base for the ministry of Jesus. A lot of his ministering to others happened through Capernaum. And also, because Peter was there, it happened through the house of Peter a lot of times. And where we are in Matthew 18, and we're transitioning to the end of the gospel, it's um, probably the last time that Jesus will ever be ministering in Capernaum. And that's significant. Why? Because it opens our understanding that where we're at, what Jesus is teaching, is that we are ending um, coming near to the end of what Jesus came to do, and that's to go to the cross. So it's important to keep that in mind when we see what Jesus is teaching the disciples about. So in our passage, here's Jesus with his disciples, and they ask a question. Who is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? 
Now, the kingdom of heaven, before we get too deep, I want to give a kind of um, simple term to what that means. It, kind, it, it means a, the life that God intended under the rule and reign of Jesus Christ. So keep that in mind as we go on. But here's the problem with the disciples' question. Their hearts was not set on the things of God, but on the things of man. They desired their own greatness rather than God's will to be done in their own heart. So to put an illustration to this, I, I remember when I was a kid, um, I have a little brother who's about two and a half years younger than me. Older brothers are the best. I'm just, just kidding for all you younger brothers. But we fought. I mean, like cats and dogs. Now, I was not a Christian. I did not grow up in a Christian home, so I'm going to put some context there. Um, but there was a lot of hostility between us. And so probably for the sake of our parents, at some point trying to keep their sanity, they would say something along this line. If you guys would please just keep it together we're gonna give you a treat. Like, I don't care, like, just get it together. Um, and so me and my brother, being the manipulative little boys that we were, we're like, all right, all right. We do bad things, we get good results. Just kidding, my, Christians, my parents were not Christians either. Okay, so, but the, the point is, we were like, okay, what, what is the treat going to be? I mean, we were just consumed. And so we'd get along, we'd snap it together and we'd get along for what felt like 10 hours, but more was probably like five minutes. Um, and so then we would just say, Silver Dollar City. Oh, oh, I bet that's what it is. And so we would try to keep it together until we could not. We were consumed with the wanting to know what this surprise was. And we would finally come to our parents. Guys, are we going to Silver Dollar City if we stop fighting? The answer was usually no. But that's besides the point. Okay, because at this point, the disciples were like I was. They could not contain the waiting any longer to the desire that most filled their hearts. So they come to Jesus and they say, who, Jesus, is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? The disciples probably were wanting to know which one of them was greatest in the kingdom of heaven. They were worried about themselves. But what Jesus was going to allude to was a group of people that was going to be greatest in the kingdom of heaven. And it was gonna be more profound and transforming than they could even imagine. Look at verse two with me. And calling to him a child, he put him in the midst of them. Let that sink in. He called a child into the midst of them. It wasn't one of the religious leaders that Jesus pointed to. You, if you wanna be great, you be like them. No, it, it wasn't the governmental power of Rome, which at the time was the known world power to the disciples. Jesus didn't say, this is what greatness looks like. He didn't even point to one of the disciples, like Peter, your confession in Matthew 16 that I am the Christ, that shows that you're the greatest. He says, no. He brings a child into the midst of them. If we want to understand true greatness, in the kingdom of heaven, we must first think like Jesus. If we use our own wisdom to think about heavenly realities, we're gonna fall into the same trap that the disciples did. We're gonna be consumed on our own greatness rather than seeing that we can only be great through Jesus Christ. Listen, this is what Colossians brings out and teaches us, Colossians 3, 1 and 2. If then you have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above, where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on things that are above, 
not on things that are on earth. What do you think most about in your life? I know far too often I think about the wrong things at the wrong times for the wrong reasons. Are you consumed with the cares of this world? That next job promotion? The next car? The next child, maybe accumulating um, children and just your family. Those are good things, all of them. They're good things, but they're not the greatest things. To love, seek, and cherish Jesus is what truly matters. It's the ultimate thing that matters in all of life. Listen to what Jesus says has eternal value rather than temporal worth. Seek first the kingdom of righteousness. And all these things will be added onto you. Christ does not neglect what you need, but you're only going to find satisfaction in what you actually need when you rest in Christ and his greatness for you. The first distinction about kingdom-minded is kingdom-minded people strive to think like their king. The second distinction about kingdom-minded people is kingdom-minded people strive to humble themselves like their king. Look back with me at verse three and said, truly I say to you, unless you turn and become like children, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. That's a, that's a stark reality. It's, Jesus is saying you'll never enter the kingdom of heaven unless this happens. Jesus probably crushes the spirits of the disciple, disciples at this moment. Think about them, they're like, oh man, that's not the answer I wanted. Right? I wanted to be great. What kind of answer is this? Because their intentions of their heart was revealed. They wanted to be God, but Jesus was calling them to reflect the image of God. There's a difference there. He doesn't affirm their way of thinking. Rather, he tells them something miraculous needs to happen if they're even going to enter into the kingdom of God. The emphasis in this verse, as we look at three, is turning and conversion. That's the emphasis there. And the the heart of the matter is you cannot enter into the kingdom of heaven unless you are first converted to Jesus Christ. And how does Jesus say that you're converted? You become like little children. Now some of you, including myself, may be thinking, why are we to become like little children? I mean, that sounds counterintuitive at face value. How am I to become like a little child? And for those of you who have children this morning, little in particular, and you got up, you got them ready, you got to church on time, you're more holy than I am. Like, that's amazing. It really is. Because children can be challenging. Um, Yes, they, they really are a blessing. A heritage is unto the Lord, 100%. But they can be whiny, needy. They can disobey. So why is Jesus saying I need to become like a little child if I want to enter into the kingdom of heaven? And the the distinction, what Jesus is saying is that children have something that we lose as adults over time. We become self-sufficient. We become self-dependent. We think, oh, we don't need help anymore. And here's the reality of children. They are absolutely dependent on their parents. Think about that. From birth, especially till five years old, they can't do anything pretty much for themselves. They're dependent upon their parents. So Jesus is showing us that when we become like children, we are confessing our absolute, utter dependence on God for everything. Jesus is not claiming 
The children are innocent, but he is saying they're dependent. And that's important. As Christians, we must strive to humble ourselves in complete dependence to the faithfulness of God and his promises. And along with that, there's a profound teaching that Jesus is alluding to in Matthew 18, because something serious has corrupted our ability to be able to live for God. Something serious has corrupted our ability, and each and every one of us who has ever been born since the fall of man, since Adam and Eve were banished from the garden because of their sin against the Lord, there's something that's been corrupted, and something miraculous must take place if we are to even know God. We all, think about this, we are born physically, but we're dead spiritually. Something has to happen. And thanks be to God, something has come to make a way that it can happen. We all must be changed. We all must be brought from death to life. We all must be transferred from the kingdom of darkness to the kingdom of his beloved son if we want to enter into his kingdom. Here is another problem. None of us can do it by our own human will. We like our will. We do. But this can't happen through our own strength or ability. I want to give an illustration from a character in church history to kind of allude to this. Martin Luther was born in 1483, and he became a very key character in what we know today as the Protestant Reformation. And Martin Luther um, was used by God in a major way to help reform some of the doctrines that had gone uh, very astray in the church. You may have heard of him as the guy who uh, nailed in the 95 Theses on the cathedral door. But for this story, I want to allude to his conversion. Because prior, with his, prior to his relationship with Jesus Christ, this man was a man of extreme discipline. And when I mean extreme, I mean like extreme to the point of death. Here is what he said as his account when he spent time as a monk. I was a good monk and I kept the rule of my order so strictly that I have to say if anyone could have gone to heaven by being a good monk, it was me. If I had kept on any longer, I should have killed myself by times I stayed out throughout the nights in prayers, in fasting, in reading, in other work. Here's the reality. Luther, after that extreme discipline, found this to be the case. He was not holy. His heart was far from the living God in hatred for that God. No amount of his efforts could fill the inescapable void of darkness that remained in his heart. You know what that produced in him? Depression, despair. He came to the end of himself. He wanted to die. Luther came to the end of himself with no hope and with all of his life laid before the Lord in humility and surrender, he looked up to Christ and begged and pleaded for mercy. And then here's what he said. At last, meditating day and night by the mercy of God, I began to understand that the righteousness of God is that through which the righteous live by a gift of God. It is by faith. It is by faith. Here, I felt as if I were entirely born again and had entered paradise itself through the gates that had been flung open unto me. This is significant. Luther became a little child in the eyes of our Heavenly Father. 
And that's what made him great. It wasn't his influence in the Reformation that labeled his greatness. It was his surrender and humility and submission before God that classified him as great. You must be born again. There's no other way. Born again. You must be born again, not according to the will of man, but to the will of God. There is no number of efforts you put forth in your life that will render any acceptance into the kingdom of heaven. Your works are like filthy rags according to the perfect, spotless perfection of Jesus Christ. But there's good news because there was a perfect, spotless lamb who was slain for the sin of the world that you might be cleansed through his pure, perfect blood and be made new and be considered righteous and holy in his eyes. And if you're a Christ, not a Christian here today, if you're not a Christian, coming to church won't give you access into God's kingdom. You must turn and humble yourself before Christ, pleading for mercy, for forgiveness, and I promise you he'll give it to you. Listen, God is faithful. For those who call upon the name of the Lord will be saved. That's an absolute declarative statement. Those who turn to the Lord in humility and full surrender before him will be saved. Look, look with me at Matthew 18, verse 4. Matthew 18, 4 says, Whoever humbles himself like this child is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. Now, you got to think of the disciples. They're probably once again confused at this statement because they're still expecting Jesus to go into Jerusalem to set up a governmental power and to reign and rule with some visible power on earth. But little did they know that Jesus was going to go to Jerusalem, like they thought, but he was going to be beaten and mocked by the Jewish people. He was going to be nailed to a cross of wood and he was going to die the most unjust death ever died on earth. Do you know why Jesus did this? He humbled himself like we ought to humble ourselves. He humbled himself to the will of the Father to reconcile broken, hopeless sinners like you and like me. He died in our place. He died for the forgiveness of our sins. And he did not just reconcile earthly powers, but every power that there is by triumphing over them on the cross. And you know what he did? He rose from the grave, resurrected, and has been exalted to the highest place, the highest throne, the highest heaven, to which at the name of Jesus Christ, every knee will bow and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Jesus is the highest. But Jesus showed us his humility that we might humble ourselves like him. And listen, the humility of Christ was undeserved by us. We didn't deserve his humility, but through his humility, he died so that we might die to our sin. That's the call. If Christ did not die for us, there would be no way that we could die to our sins. We'd be stuck and enslaved in them forever. But thanks be to God, amen, that Jesus Christ has given us access through his death and resurrection to a relationship reconciled with him. 
With that in mind, here's the exhortation. Friends, don't desire to be great, but desire to be little. Your greatness will never supersede the majesty of that of Jesus Christ. Jesus says, whoever becomes like a child is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. When you humble yourself under Christ, he will exalt you. God opposes the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, that at the proper time, he may exalt you. And here's the good news for us Christians. You don't just barely make the cut. There's no B-team Christianity. You don't just get in and you're, you know, you're at the bottom of the list. But Jesus says that if you humble yourself to become like little children, you are the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. Isn't that amazing? And listen, you don't just get Jesus when you keep it together, church. You get Jesus in your worst failings. You get Jesus even when you are not enough. And I'm sure of this, that nothing can separate kingdom-minded people from the love of their king. There's nothing that can. King Jesus is great on your behalf so that you don't have to be. He will love you. He has loved you. He's given himself for you. He will keep you. The second distinction, distinction, yes, about kingdom-minded people is that kingdom-minded people strive to humble themselves like their king. And so the third, king, uh, third distinction is kingdom-minded people strive to act like their king. Look back with me at Matthew 18, 5 and 6. Verse 5 says, whoever receives one such child in my name receives me. But whoever causes one of these little ones who believe in me to sin, it would be better for him to have a great millstone fastened around his neck and to be drowned in the depth of the sea. So I believe at this time, Jesus is is taking his disciples' attention from the physical realities, right? He brought a real child into the midst of them. And he said, this is what true greatness looks like. And he's taking that and he's showing spiritually how these implicate itself in your day-to-day life. That's when Jesus says, whoever receives a child in my name receives me. What he's saying is that if anyone has received me, Jesus, as Lord, he will act based on that truth towards other people. So the way that we live our life is changed based on the lordship of Christ over our own life. And again, the disciples, a common misconception, even for us, think about this. As I'm saying disciples, I'm talking about us so commonly as well. A common misconception for the disciples was that they didn't need to be generous or loving to the outcast, to the lowly, to the poor, to the sinner, to the broken. And once again, Jesus comes in with a little taste of reality. It could be the poorest outcast the one that no one regards, the one that's farthest from the Lord, the one that's farthest from the community. And if we go to them and serve them for the glory of Jesus Christ, it's like you have done it to Jesus himself. One commentator puts it this way. It is the habit of the world to serve the great and the popular, but for the follower of Jesus The priority must be to receive and welcome the world's smallest people. Powerful, isn't it? Powerful. Jesus doesn't take away our pursuit for greatness, but he radically redefines it. 
He radically redefines what that looks like. How about in our church? How about to the church members or the guests that no one goes and talks to, people who we interact with as we go into the world? What do we do? We go up to them, we care for them because Christ has shown us a care and a love that we did not deserve for ourselves. Did we deserve it? We didn't. I know I didn't. And this is what makes church membership so sweet. It's what makes it so sweet. When we are joined together in a local church, we express the love of Christ for one another as it's been shown to us. Every action done for a Christian, every prayer prayed for the hurting saint, every encouragement given to the downcast believer, it's like it's been done to Jesus himself. This is how God builds his church in unity and maturity. We weep with those who weep. We rejoice with those who rejoice. And we correct those who are straying because this is how kingdom-minded people strive to act by God's grace. Look with me at verse six because Jesus gives, also gives his disciples a warning. A warning for anyone who denies Christ by leading others into sin. He says it would be better for that person to die than to lead one of his little children to sin. And here's why he says that. Sin is a hindrance for the dependence of little children to walk with, to trust, and to follow Jesus in all of his truth. Sin is a hindrance to that. It stops that. And we are also opened up to this other reality, that there is another kingdom with another king. We know this. The kingdom of darkness with their ruler, Satan, the adversary. There are people who are following that kingdom, who are perishing as they follow the pattern of the world and the pattern of this king. They resemble wolves rather than little children, and they are not neutral in their efforts on earth. It's unfortunate. These are antichrists, which is anyone who denies Jesus Christ as Lord and submits to his lordship. And that's what 1 John teaches us. And they have a desire to worship self and to attempt to devour the little children who are in the kingdom of heaven. Here's what Jesus says. Tying a millstone around your neck and jumping into the depth of the sea isn't enough of a punishment for deterring the faith of believers. Jesus cares for his sheep. He cares for us. He loves us. He leads us. He protects us. He is our great shepherd who oversees and overwatches us. That's comforting. There's no sin committed against you if you're a Christian, that will hinder the eternal destiny of your soul. And there's complete healing for that in Jesus as well. Parents, if your children were in danger from some type of predator, whether it be physical or spiritual, wouldn't you do anything to protect them, to love them, to cherish them, to nurture them? And God is no different. The unrepentant person who neglects God and neglects his children will receive God's righteous wrath. And as Christ followers, this is important. We, we don't get favored because 
Christians are some measure on a different pedestal than unbelievers in the sense of our own righteousness. It's not our own righteousness that we get favored by, but it's the righteousness of Jesus Christ, which he has placed fully upon us. That's why we are protected under his lordship, because we have become his people. He has brought us into his kingdom by his grace, for his purposes, for his glory. In Matthew 18, 6, Jesus is saying that the wicked will be judged with great measure if they don't turn from their sin and the encouragement of others of that sin as well. The warning's there. We need to take heed. So the third distinction about kingdom-minded people is they strive to act like their king. And we've seen these three distinctions about kingdom-minded people today, and we, as we're wrapping up, I want us to reflect on our own hearts. In your life today, are you striving to make yourself look great in the eyes of others? Or are you wanting to make Jesus Christ look great to others? I want the words of Jesus to resonate in our hearts this morning. If you seek to find your life, you will lose it. But if you lose your life, for his sake and for the gospel's sake, you will find it. You will find life. You don't have to seek your own greatness because the Lord Jesus has been great on your behalf. If you're striving today to find God's approval, stop. All you need is Jesus. Listen, the approval of man will fall, but the approval of God will stand forever. Maybe you have been eyeing that next job promotion. Maybe you've been focusing on finances, investments, all of these things, which are good things. Don't get distracted by them. The greatness of what we leave will crumble if it's not built on the greatness of Jesus Christ. So build upon the rock of ages so that your greatness and your legacy will point to him all the more. When you put Jesus above everything else, everything else, right, becomes meaningful in a whole new way. And it's no longer about you, but it's in gratitude to the one who gave himself for you. For anyone who is not a Christ follower here today, I was there. We all sitting in this room who know Jesus were there. We were dead in our sins without hope crushed by the weight and the shame of our guilt before a holy, loving God who deserves to judge us for our sins. Christianity isn't for the person who has it all together, the person who grew up in church. Christianity is for the lost, broken sinner who has no hope. Jesus redeems you, Jesus saves you, and Jesus takes your hard heart and gives you a new heart with new desires and new aspirations to follow him and to love him. If you would turn from your sin and turn to Jesus, you would be made new, made new, and you will enter into eternal life, God's kingdom, which has no end at all. Greatness in the kingdom of heaven is given to whoever humbles themselves to receive the king of heaven.